Isn't it humbling when you think you really know something? Deeply held convictions. And then you have a life experience and it just goes out the window. You'd think you know how you'd deal with a medical crisis, how you'd handle an emergency, what kind of friend or partner you are. You think you know the formula, the algorithm, how it all adds up. And then reality slaps you in the face. Hard, like one of those comic book slow motion slaps where your lips and teeth and spit fly out to the side. To quote the classic early 2000s hard-hitting documentary TV show, MTV Diary, you think you know, but you have no idea. You know who will really do that to you? Humble you by taking your abstract knowledge firmly into the realm of the concrete? Kids. Technically, like, my dad has also taught me a lot of math. Mm-hmm. But, like, like, if you want, like, more medium difficulty math questions to be solved, you can ask me. But if you want, like, very hard ones, just ask my dad. Don't ask me for the hard ones. We have been through some hard questions together, haven't we? I'm Eve Ewing, and this is Guaranteed, the podcast where we find out what happens when regular people around my sweet, sweet hometown of Chicago receive direct cash assistance, guaranteed income. We learn about the choices people make, the dreams they pursue, and the impossible things that get a little more possible when folks get a little bit of money. Guaranteed. On this episode, you get to meet Raul, a participant in a guaranteed income program run by the municipality of Evanston, which is a town immediately to the north of Chicago. Raul was born in Venezuela. He's a mathematician, a movie nerd, a deeply analytical thinker, and perhaps most importantly in his life right now, a committed dad to two sons. More on them in a bit. Raul and I talked about the ways life and its curveballs have forced him to shift perspective on a lot of things he thought he knew about society, and also about himself. Here he is. My undergrad was actually in uh, math and philosophy and film and media studies, so what they used to call it back then at uh, in college. So yeah, it was like a you know, I was always was, was busy back then, triple major, I guess you could call it. Uh, but of course, as far as, you know, government scholarships from third world countries go, of course, you know, money is always late. So it was it was a bit of a, <laughs> of a balancing act. But uh, yeah, of course, I didn't have a wife and a kid or, or a girlfriend, really, for that matter, honestly, because, you know, I <laughs> didn't really have much of, you know, much time. So I did a lot of math, like abstract, very abstract math, uh, going into things like uh, logic. And that's sort of where the connection with uh, philosophy kind of happened. Mathematical logic, they call it, like what you can prove or not in math, which is kind of a, I don't know, kind of a circular question, really, because, I mean, you're trying to use logical tools in order to study another logical language, which is math. And so it gets a little crazy from there. But used to do a lot of like research about, you know, how companies work and then, you know, like predicting like like stock prices and things like that. Um, at that, I did, uh, you know, at a corporate level, I guess, for those years until what, 2003, which was right around the time I got, you know, fed up with that. And and then again, I was like the aftermath of 9-11 and I, and I was back in Venezuela right around the time when the country started, you know, imploding. So I said, okay, you know what? I'm just going to go to the loneliest place on earth or something, you know, place where nobody knows anything. I'm up, I mean, you know, where I know nobody, nobody knows me and there's no like political anything. So 
I moved to Switzerland, uh, of all places. Oh, also, the other thing, in Europe, most universities are free anyways, even for foreign students. So they kind of tilted <laughs> the, the scale that way because, you know, I wasn't going to go for like a master's or anything and, you know, paying like who knows how many thousands of dollars a year. Um, so I went there and uh, there was this buddy of mine and he said, oh, yeah, but, you know, we can go and do this trail in Spain. And I have this friend in Barcelona. She's also from from Venezuela. You know, come, you, you know, you got to you got to meet her and, you know, we can like, you know, hang out or something. So this guy brings me into his friend's house. The friend wasn't there. So he says, you know, start cooking this and start doing that. And I'm like, well, you know, yeah, sure. I'm cooking like, you know, like this is my own place. Yeah, sure. And then, of course, the owner of the place, I mean, the, this, this guy's friend was there. And it was like, oh, hi, nice to meet you. I mean, it's funny. The funny thing is that little did I know then that was going to be my wife. So tell me a little bit about your wife. What was she doing there? And also, um, what do you love about her? Well, I have to say first, I like everything. If somebody asked me, like, what's good and nice and kind, I would have to say Sylvia. We got our first son, 2008, that was. So right after he was born, things were fine for a while. But then when after he turned, what, two or something, you know, they started noticing things. He's the kind of kid that would speak a lot with like this huge vocabulary, but socially was like nothing was happening. He was having a hard time engaging. So, you know, we started like, oh, okay, so, you know, what do we do? And, uh, well, then that's how we got exposed to this whole thing about disability law around the world. I was at a conference and, I mean, my advisor was very good friends with researchers here in the U.S. And, well, which happened to be the guys at Northwestern. And, you know, we kind of, you know, we got to know each other. We collaborated for a while. And then when the time came to look at what was next, you know, these people said, oh, you know, why don't you just you know, come and do some research and, you know, enter the job market if you want at some point, you know, get a few papers under your under your belt or something. Uh, so I came. That was the idea <laughs> originally. But then Daniel was, what, four, almost five. We come here to Northwestern and then we enrolled him at, at a local school, you know, get him his uh, individualized education plans, IP, you know, all these things. I mean, I'm not, I'm not blaming the system or anything. It's just that how do you get people that are qualified in so many different areas when you have a kid with so, you know, with, that is affected in so many different ways? I mean, it's, it is hard. I mean, this, this was my first kid with, <laughs> with autism and autism always presents differently, but he started having behavioral issues that got more and more significant and the schools were not really legal framework or not you know it was just hard to handle what was happening uh because he had this potential to do things but i don't know the way things were structured i guess at, at you know at school at the, with the teachers and so on it, it made things super difficult for us you know well at some point he even we even got like a child protection you know protective service cfs or whatever it's called we had to have them called on the school somebody who did not know much about how to you know handle meltdowns or outbursts from i mean he was like four or five come but he came back home with like his arms like black ranks on his arms just because somebody oh had handled God. it. Yeah, I mean, I, oh I know. God. But of course, then we, you know, we ask him like, who did this to you? Of course, he, you know, he's not very verbal. In that sense, you know, it was very difficult to point out the person that, that might have done this. So that was 10 years ago. And then, well, we had our other son, Lucas, who's uh, just turned eight last week. I mean, he's also on the spectrum, but it's a different presentation. Uh, you know, he plays the cello and 
started playing cello like a year ago, and now he plays a bunch of things and learned chess by himself. I mean, you know, he's very smart, even if he's not the most social <laughs> guy out there. It is a different set of challenges. There are resources we can tap into that have made our lives and their lives a lot easier. And honestly, I mean, I, I'm really glad Lucas was born here because, you know, if I mean, if there's a place where he can really bring out his potential, I mean, I don't, I can't really think of a of a better place, even if he's going to be like a weird kid. Uh, but then again, I was a weird kid too, so it doesn't really matter. I mean, it's you know. It, it's fine. I mean, I, as long as he has like space to breathe, um, I'm I'm fine. How would you describe Evanston to somebody who's never been there? Well, when I got there, I would have said, "Oh yeah, you know, it's just a you know, it's a college town." But the city has a life of its own that is really interesting. It's more like a you know something that goes beyond the school, or I don't know. There's um there's a very interesting um demographic mix i mean there's a lot of like you know super rich people up north of course but there's a uh, working class section of evanston that i find i don't know especially nice i mean really uh people that enjoy you know having a community and participating as active members of their community there's a lot of room to like do uh community building and this this is something that when you have kids with certain social limitations, you really appreciate those. I mean, you can go to the uh, community center or, you know, we can go to the pool and there's always something uh, going on around. And even if you're like short on cash, as we usually are, <laughs> some of these programs are even, are even free. And, uh, you know, the city has put a lot of effort into trying to, you know, include a lot of people, regardless of, you know, whether they have the money or not. And that's that's something that I have always appreciated, especially, you know, during uh, these past uh, few years. But Evanston has what, like eighty thousand people, something. I mean, it's not it's not a big, it's not a huge place, but it has ten food pantries. There are lots of people uh, willing to lend a hand, I guess. Stuff with my kids got a little bit more. Um, how do I say this? Uh, complicated, and then of course <laughs> COVID came. So there was like a, you know a series of events that made things uh, complicated, and that took me away from academia, I guess, and you know more into like uh, you know trying to do things on your own, or you know trying to adapt your schedule to better serve the needs of 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 of, of your kids because they you know they they need a lot of extra attention, and they're not as independent, and they will never be <laughs> as independent. At least my oldest is not going to be as independent as, well, as, I don't know, as I have been, for example, in my life. I mean, he's probably going to need care for the rest of his life. So, you know, you have to adjust things around that. So I became a bit of a, uh, I don't know, freelancer. So from academic, I went to, I don't know, tutoring and I've done some web pages. I've done some translations. <laughs> I mean, I've, did, I've done, done it all. I've done a few things just to keep ourselves well, afloat, uh, basically. I mean, it's been uh, the worst possible time to go that route, especially like three years ago. I mean, I still remember uh, because we um, did get like an eviction notice. Like, what was it? COVID was declared an emergency like in March. And I, we got the notice like April 1st or something. And it was, you know, it was it was rough. I mean, in the end, we had to like move around. Um, so, you know, it's it, it's been it's been a rough few years. I mean, there's been some interesting stuff, too, but uh, it's it's been hard. You know, it kind of puts your life in a perspective in a way. Right. Because the uh, experiences that I'm living right now, the stuff that I'm going through right now, even though some of it is hard, some of it has also been like very, I don't know illuminating in a way 
especially because before, I mean, an academic, when I was working with universities and things like that, I was doing um, math and finance. So it was like economics from, from a very like detached point of view, right? Like, what's the optimal choice to do, blah, blah, blah. I mean, which is fine, but still, you know, once you're actually faced with choices with limited resources, I mean, you know, economics and <laughs> the whole idea of economics takes on a very, you know, on a whole new meaning, really. <laughs> I mean, these are not choices that are made in the abstract that you're going to show at a conference. I mean, these are things that you're doing because you want to eat or you want to get, you know, roof over your head. You know, <laughs> it makes everything more real. And I, I do appreciate that. Usually, you know, when I speak about these things, I, I have a feeling that I tend not to show that much emotion. That doesn't mean that there's no emotion. It's just that I'm just like talking and like, you know, kind of thinking about what's going on in my head. Um, even if I'm not like expressing much, I'm, I'm trying to convey a sense of warmth that does not usually come from my, you know, expression, you know, from my, <laughs> from the way I, I look just because, you know, it, I, I don't know. You know, hearing you talk through this question, it's not the first time that I've heard someone who does math or does philosophy express what you just expressed, which is a self-consciousness or self-awareness of, you know, am I expressing my feelings correctly? Am I being understood? Do people think that I don't feel a certain way or is it not you know, legible to them. And I guess I wonder if that is something that you've always dealt with. And if you see that in other mathematicians, in your kids, in pop culture, you know, is it something that you relate to when you see it in others? Wow. Um, yes. A short answer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, but of course, I'm wired and trained to see things in a certain way. So, you know, whenever you get asked your opinion about things, you know, you know, whatever you say, it's going to be said through the lens of, I don't know, who you are in a way. And in that sense, people that are used to doing things analytically, I guess, are like trying to, you know, like dissect things into tiny little pieces and understand how each one, you know, how the pieces are connected and so on. They tend to, you know, come across as more like detached. And this is something I know I have, I mean, I've always felt that I am kind of like that. Like ever since I was in school, like, you know, with the other kids and they would always have a little bit of, bit of fun, like, oh yeah, no, you know, try and, you know, make role, explain to you, blah, blah, blah. And then they would start like, you know, mocking me like, like, you know, the way I move my hands and like go up around, like, I don't know, C3PO or something, you know, like, and then of course I, I well I was lucky enough uh, when I got this scholarship I was in Boston I was um, I was at MIT for for my undergrad and wow okay so you know <laughs> there were a lot of little robots like me I mean I you know I mean lots of people that are you know very focused on the kinds of analyses and you know the way they think about things so I don't know it's an attitude that you see a lot especially at schools with a, uh, I don't know, with a science slash engineering bent. But in the end, some people are self-conscious about these things. I am one of them. And I have become more um, self-conscious about this as I, as I have grown older. I, don't, I didn't really care about any of this when I was 20 or 25. My attitude was more like, you know, keep up or I'll find somebody, you know, somebody else to talk to or something. You know, I wasn't, I guess as I've grown older, I've become more aware of things like inclusion and like, you know, reaching out to others that are not necessarily 
on your same wavelength in a in a sense you know because because there's something to learn everywhere and limiting yourself to a certain type of people by choice is not you know it's not something that i want to do because i don't know I, i guess philosophically i'm more into embracing as many i don't know cultures or points of view and you know like getting to know people like in a broader sense right so that's why for example you know if i talk to somebody and i you know i like describe your feelings and this is a you know this is a typical one for me i have the feeling that i will come across as detached or like what is this guy talking about is this guy talking about feelings or you know is it like a you know like a operating manual for uh, for a toaster or something and you know it's a <laughs> but that that's okay i mean i mean, I, I you know it's it, it's just that you know, you learn to express yourself in certain ways, and you know those ways they stay with you. You mentioned that um, with each of your kids, you mentioned that they struggle with social interactions, or that that's something that is challenging for them. Sure. And so, how has processing that with them, trying to be there for them, trying to support them through that, how has that impacted the way you think about you know social life in the social world? Jeez, wow, that blew up everything uh, that I knew. I mean, it was, first of all, I I saw a lot of myself growing up in them. Even my not very verbal 15-year-old, I mean, there's many things that, you know, attitudes and, and social behaviors in him. I, I was like, oh, I was doing this. I mean, this is, this is, this is me in a way. And well, with Lucas, it's all, also the same thing. It's like, as an adult, it the only way I, I understand him is because I kind of remember feeling something similar a long time ago. So in that sense, uh, I'm just glad that I have a kind of awareness to try and help the kids navigate life and social uh, situations as much as I possibly can. I mean, of course, I'm not going to be there uh, <laughs> forever. And my eight-year-old is already asking me to, you know, like drop him off at a party and, no, no, I don't, you know, I don't want, you know, I don't want you around here, you know, just go and come back in a couple of, okay. But, you know, but I'm just glad I'm, I can provide some form of coaching or something like that because I'm not, I'm not the most social person myself, to be honest. I mean, I guess I'm social enough to function (laughs) and and do things. Um, Well, I mean, I see myself as also being on the spectrum. That's what I'm trying to say. I'm just glad that I'm in a position where I can have a better perspective about what I think they are doing or what I think they're going through than my parents had about me growing up in the 80s, I guess. How did you fall in love with math? My road to math was like a sort of a backdoor route mm-hmm. kind of thing, like many things in my life, I guess. I wasn't, what is it, eighth grade, I guess, the equivalent? I wasn't the uh, studios type. The I wasn't the, uh, you know, very, like the bookworm type or anything. I was okay. I was just a just a kid. wasn't thinking about much, honestly. <laughs> honestly. Uh, maybe like when the next swim training thing was going to happen. But in Venezuela, the thing, it used to go by quarters like september december december march and then march june or something and the first quarter i failed math my parents are not especially thrilled i was kind of ashamed because i don't think it was like a such a hard thing but i was i just wasn't you know i wasn't into it honestly i was just not doing anything then i started reading the book like okay i'm gonna catch up with the math i started liking the material um, my teacher at the time, he sent me to the board, like, solve whatever. And I was like, I wasn't sure what to do. And he said something like, oh, I'll see you back in September. September, 
in Venezuelan schooling is the month when you fail a class for the whole year. You go and take a final exam in September to try and get a passing grade and see if you can pass that thing. So the guy said, you know, see you in September, like, you know, you're like, a failure. You know, give up <laughs> or yeah, something. Yeah. I started getting good grades and one good grades in one subject kind of led to good grades in another and so on and so forth. Then came the, uh, well, I was lucky enough to get a teacher that kind of saw like, oh, this guy can do something interesting. And she was also a lot into math. And he, she said, why don't you take this exam? Like a math Olympiad kind of exam. Mm-hmm. So I took it and I did well. And then I started getting training, you know, just by like a series of like tiny little coincidences or like weird things or teaching uh, approaches or what have you. I ended up taking a bunch of math exams that kind of led me to this scholarship thing that ended up sending me all the way to Massachusetts to be with all these, you know, robots who are not robots. And then, you know, changed my life in a way that I would have never imagined being from, you know, working class people. And you don't have to give people a ladder, but, you know, every few, you know, some steps are, <laughs> are nice. I mean, you know, one of the things you said a minute ago is, you know, that you're not always going to be around with your kids. And you talked about the fact that Daniel will always perhaps need some form of care. Oh, yeah. How do you think about that, given, you know, the limitations of our society in terms of long term care and access for disabled people? Well, you see all these white hairs here now. Uh, yeah. All the, <laughs> yeah, all the new, you got some new gray yeah, all hairs. The, all the new white, well, not new, but they've been, you know, they've been a long time. Proliferating. Uh, coming. Yeah, right. Um, it is a very, very scary prospect. You know, I'm not growing any younger and he's almost, I mean, he's as tall as me. He's, he can wear my clothing. I mean, the prospect of me not being able to be there because I'm just going to be, you know, out of service <laughs> um, at some point. Uh, it, it is like, the, it's probably one of the scariest things that I that I have to think about, especially for Daniel, because I think Lucas, you know, he's more independent, he's more verbal, but Daniel, I know he's not. I mean, no, no, no way. And uh, I don't know, uh, for a few years, our legal situation in the US was not, you know, when my research visa thing expired at Northwestern, I either had to go back home to Venezuela, right around where things started to go like really, really, really bad. So we stayed and we were out of status or aka illegal for a few years. Um, we are not now, we're we're good now, but this, this is a recent thing. So hopefully, you know, I'll be able to like, you know, in terms of like job prospects, things might, you know, look up. But the fact remains that whatever I do, I'm not sure if I'm going to have enough time or money or whatever resources I need to be able to, you know, provide for him. That is one of the things that really keeps me, well, keeps us awake at night. You know, we talk about it, you know, every now and then, like, you know, we try to, you know, set up things and like, oh yeah, you know, set up, set up a disability account. But of course you can set up as many disability tax-free accounts as you want but you have to put stuff in and <laughs> you have to put money into them and that's the, you know that's the tricky part so i'm just hoping that we will be able to catch up to some extent it is something that's you know it's going to be you know on the back of our minds on the back of our heads forever i think i mean all conversations are going to end up there 
<laughs> at some point or another. And that is that is hard. You know, uh, I took Lucas to a park the other day with like firefighters and water and stuff. And somebody, you know, some woman around my age, I guess, she approached me and she said, oh, you're Daniel's dad, right? I was like, oh, yeah. And so this happened to be a the mom of somebody that Daniel had gone to kindergarten with. And they were now like, what, they're now 15 and they're in high school. And she showed me a picture and I see, you know, this picture of like, you know, young teenagers, you know, like being teenagers, basically. Um, and it is hard. I mean, even with all the money in the world, there's this sense that, you know, it's not going to be enough just because if I'm not there, I'm not, I just don't know what's going to happen to him. Those are problems that are going to come later on. But Independence and providing the means for uh, independence is something that is always in my thoughts. And it's also, it's a reminder that that requires money, but money is a necessary but not sufficient condition for that kind of independence. I mean, it's just the way it is. I mean, you, you know, as a parent and as a parent of a child with a disability, that, that's what you do. I mean, you just care for for the child and want to make sure that, you, you know, that the whole caring business is done until well <laughs> until forever basically uh so it is i don't know it's uh, it's it's overwhelming but i mean somebody has to think about these things and uh i mean illinois, illinois is not a bad state honestly in terms of uh resources but uh resources are limited but uh, i don't know i mean it's a it's a big it's a big question mark and uncertainty is not something uh anybody enjoys yeah, especially when you're an analytic thinker, I think you're trying to get to the solution and sometimes there isn't one. Um, if you have capacity for another tough question, you can tell me if you don't, but but I wanted to follow up on what you shared about eviction earlier. Um, yeah, what happened and and also I guess I'm sensitive to thinking about the disruption for the boys as well, again, because routine, right? Yeah, I mean, what happened was pretty simple. We at some point we could not pay uh rent anymore at some point we got some help from like a uh, church local church like i said but at some point it was just you know it was just untenable so we got the notice um and there was not much we could do i thought we could sort it out somehow well turns out we we couldn't really um you can imagine that all sorts of feelings that came along with that especially since i was trying to convince Sylvia that, you know, things are going to be fine. I'm going to try and figure this out. And of course I couldn't. And, you know, I failed and I felt at least that I failed in that particular instance. And, you know, we were lucky that at some point when that happened, there was a program like a rental assistance, something or another from the city. And they helped us out, like cover what was due. And then the first couple of months of the new place, the place we've been at for three and a half years. And then, of course, during the pandemic, I saw an increase in terms of like tutoring services, recurring tutoring services. So, so I, we were able to like, you know, stay afloat during the pandemic. But I, I mean, if it hadn't been for that help at that particular point in time, I mean, I cannot even imagine what would have happened without those uh, programs during the, that were around during the pandemic. You know, a population that was already at risk. I guess one of the main lessons here is that um, people with disabilities and families of people with disabilities, they are already in a hard place as it is. One of the things you said earlier was that when you were experiencing eviction, it altered your perspective on all of these things that you had once seen from a very abstract 
point of view, right? You know, looking back at the experience, how how do you see things differently than you would have prior? You know, when you have to make household choices that are like, you know, between bad and worse, there is something that no economic model will take into account, uh, which is, you know, what you will feel like. I mean, the way you're going to be left emotionally after making those uh, hard decisions, which mean moving out of out of your place or going, I don't know, going to the street or, you know, skipping a meal. I mean, th- those things are like very real possibilities that policymakers in general, I mean, I'm not blaming them. It's just of them not having the proper perspective, you know, being in the shoes of the people that need those services and whose lives are, you know, hanging by a thread because they are at risk for whatever reason. What made you want to apply to Evanston's Guaranteed Income Program and how has it affected your life? Well, the first reason is because, of course, we needed the money. (laughs) I mean, rents in Evanston are pretty high. They announced uh, the study and we were like, okay, so that could probably shave off the rent by what, like a third or something, because it's like uh, 500 a month and the rent is almost 1500 for a tiny apartment. Oh, geez. But it could give us a little bit of room, you know, if if money runs uh, low on, on certain months. So we did and we were well, lucky. <laughs> we uh, got in and that's what we've been doing. I mean, basically uh, using it as a, as, you know, like a rent subsidy, so to speak. And um, it has allowed us to do other little things, which we wouldn't have been able to do otherwise, uh, especially in the summer, for example. Uh, Lucas wanted to do like chess camp. Go figure. I mean, I I don't think I would have done that at eight. But, um, you know, with the help of the city, you know, like a little scholarship here and then some, you know, the fact that we haven't had to pay full rent for a few months allowed us to, you know, to give him that opportunity. And that is something, you know, it, it's great. And uh, it has allowed us to be a little more flexible in our schedule, especially, this, I mean, summers are hard because unstructured time is just hard for my oldest. Um, I mean, he was in like extended school year, but that had just ended, I don't know, like a week ago. So we are faced with the whole, like, you know, it's going to be a month of the two of them at home, like, you know, running after each other. I mean, something like this pilot program has actually given me, you know, allowed us to be home and, and and deal with the meltdowns that will occur. That is something I don't think I would have been able to do otherwise. And uh, the other thing, and this is something that, I, that I've been thinking about a long time, is about the fact that these funds are discretionary. I mean, these are not funds that are supposed to be used for like one specific thing. You know, oh yeah, you know, you give money to the people and they should be able to only spend it on this and this and that. that that's not quite right. In my view now, I mean, I I have to admit, because people do know what they need to spend their money on. Sometimes will they do silly stuff? Yes, sometimes. But on average, I'm pretty sure most people will not want to be in a position where they are faced with an extremely adverse situation. I mean, the idea that people should have money dedicated to buying food items, I think that's fine. But there's more to life than food. And since the people that organize these things are only the the most they have seen about microeconomic theory and so you know choice theory and things like that, it's what they've seen in the books, you know, it's hard for them to relate and think about what would you do, you know, if you had this amount of money 
and I just make it available only for food. Well, you know, there's no ill will or anything like that. There's not, it's not the system trying to be mean to people, but it's a matter of not understanding the perspective of the other. The perspective of the other is probably the most important issue in philosophy. And as long as you don't put yourself in the other person's shoes, you're not going to be able to do things that will benefit other people in an effective way just because you don't know. One of the main things, if not the main thing that you pursue in economics is to solve models or mathematical descriptions of reality where you're trying to optimize something, where you're trying to maximize whether it's utility or money or, you know, leisure time or, you know, you're always trying to make something optimal. So you solve a a bunch of equations and you see which combination of uh, labor or leisure is appropriate and you're going to get an answer based on whatever parameters or whatever in your model. So a policymaker comes in and reads that, you know, and he goes, oh, okay, so we can get rid of, you know, this and that. There is so much that is wrong with that. (laughs) First of all, a model is an abstraction that doesn't capture the whole of reality. Who said this? I don't remember, but like all models are bad, but some are useful. And that is absolutely true. I mean, models are an approximation to reality and they can guide you in making decisions. But to try and seek a sense of optimality based on something that you saw emerge on a model, that is dangerous. And that happens a lot in public economics. There is a psychological factor about the well-being of people that is not captured in models. Some things that might not be optimal in a monetary sense, might be optimal in some other ways. And this is something that I've had to navigate and also bruised ego has had to navigate quite a few times, especially when people, you know, it's like sometimes people having this very, uh, you know, like condescending attitude, like, uh, oh yeah, you know, you must be poor because you drink too much or because, you know, you're not educated enough or because you, this or that. Nobody knows. Everybody comes from a different set of circumstances and there's a sense of, you know, being judged, that is not cool. But you know what, Bruce egos, I mean, as long as my kids keep getting what they need, I don't care about any ego or somebody like disregarding or, you know, thinking any less of me. I mean, I don't care. Raul's identity as a parent was such a big part of our conversation, it was clear I needed to see him in his dad world in order to get the full picture. So, on a Saturday, I met up with him and his younger son, Lucas, as they hung out at their local playground. Hi, buddy. Hi. What's your name? My name is Lucas. Lucas, do you do handshakes? Do you do fist bumps? I'm really fine with any of them. Okay, you want to do an elbow? How, how old are you, Lucas? Uh, I'm around eight. Around, around, around. eight. <laughs> when you did you say around eight because you are when's your birthday? My birthday is uh on July the fifth. So were you saying around eight because you're a little bit more than eight? Because I am a little bit more than eight, but not like in the years. Yeah, I get what you're saying. It, like if I were to ask you if you're eight and a certain fraction or eight in a certain decimal, would you be able to tell me? Probably not because if it's a decimal. That's undefined because if there's an infinite amount of like time, like properties, like infinitely going down and down and down. Because if you answer the question, your answer immediately becomes wrong because time has passed. Yes. And plus, if I somehow did calculate that, I'd be spinning numbers here forever. 
and then then you would be here till you were nine. It became clear pretty quickly that Raul is not the only person in the family who loves math. Um, Raul, can, can you explain the Klaus conjecture to me? Yeah, it's just, uh, I mean, you start with a number, and uh, if the number is um, odd. odd, you multiply it by three and add one to it. And if it's even, you, you divide, divide it by, by two. two. And no matter where you start, so far, everybody, I mean, everybody. it will eventually come back to the number one. There's no infinite, you know, it doesn't blow up to infinity and people have been trying to prove that for what, for like 80 years now? But it it shouldn't be true because you can't make infinite things to have something in common that isn't a core property. But then you're saying that like all even numbers have at least one odd number in them? No. I think I understand what you're saying, which is that variation is always going to be part of a set unless you're saying that that set is defined by a core property. Mm-hmm. And so if we're only saying that this set of numbers is defined by being an integer and being either odd or even, then how can it be that they share this other thing if yeah. it's not there? Even if the set that we're working that. on is defined by a core property still, mm-hmm. a core set is basically like a set of the entire species. Like you can't just take a group of humans and like, that's like one specific kind of way and say that one of them has a different type of specific way. No, you have to group, like, all of them mm-hmm. instead of just the group. Does it make you proud to know that your son is interested in something that you're also interested in and that's oh, something yeah, you guys it, can it, share? It, it, is, it, it is great. I mean, I, you know, I like that. I mean, you know, who wouldn't? I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's what I really care about is, you know, whatever, you know, he does something that he likes. And if he likes it, it's fine. And, you know, like I always tell him, you know, even, you know, years from now you know if at some point you say oh you know what i don't like doing this anymore stop it you know i'm not gonna force you to do anything you don't want to do it's not doesn't make any sense it was so much fun hanging out with raul and meeting lucas who happily flipped around the playground in the customary manner of people who are approximately eight but raul was also a little bit sad that i didn't get to meet daniel however parenting his two kids has helped him learn to move from the abstract world what would be ideal to the concrete reality of their needs and what it looks like to support them. Rough morning. Yeah, I mean, sometimes, you know, it's a life at, at our place is pretty random in that sense. You know, sometimes, you know, some days are difficult. Some mm-hmm. days are more difficult. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> no, I mean, you know, some, I mean, he, you know, he, Daniel, there's this schedule yeah. in his head. Yeah. And, you know, like deviations from it are hard to handle yeah. for him. It's like the needs of both my kids are like so, so far apart. I mean, it's not like there are no economies of scale here. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, there's no, you know, if I do some, one thing for one kid, it's not like I can, re- you know, do the same for the other. Mm-hmm. So I have, it's like everything has to be done twice in a way. There's a sort of division of labor at home. Uh, so one of us, uh, I mean, whenever we do things together, one of us, you know, we're on, on, on watch, I guess, like mm-hmm. on standby, like just you know, because we have to be ready to, you know, like, get out or you know do something and you know have the other stay with the other kid it's become our normal mm-hmm. you know uh it's not which is i mean it's a bit it's a bit of a pain sometimes uh, because sometimes you know we might both of us might want to watch the full recital or go to the movie or go to the museum or whatever it is that we're doing but you know it's uh we just try to divide the work in such a way that they both get what you know what they need i mean there's the space or you know and this is something that um not everybody has 
fully understood like friends or family and it's been sort of a difficult subject uh, to bring about because you know we have essentially become less social when it comes to the outside world or like you know we'll go to a place and then you know we have to leave leave early and people are like what, what, what are you doing i mean it's like a, you know what the what, what is this right i'm not gonna like force my kid to be through something he doesn't want to be because i mean he gets overwhelmed he gets like overstimulated or something like that it is what it is i mean i'm you know just have to know where your loyalties lie and yeah, yeah. Um, you know if whoever understands great whoever doesn't you know tough luck well I understand <laughs> I well, definitely yeah, understand yeah. I mean it's funny because most of the friends that we have made here are actually friends you know within the uh, disability community because you know I don't know some things are just easier to understand I guess Having hard and fast rules about things is always simpler when you don't have to face the consequences of how they play out in real life. You can have crystal clear ideas about how kids should act that don't include all kids or account for their needs. You can have rigid theories and policies about how housing should work or schools or legal citizenship or how people should relate to money until you face the economic reality of having to make seemingly impossible decisions that will shape the lives of the people you love. But Aul reminds us that making smart and caring choices for yourself, for your children, for your community, can't just be about maximizing somebody else's utility function. It has to include patience, compassion, empathy, and acceptance. I know, I know, that might seem like an unsolvable puzzle, an impossible conundrum worthy of deep analysis beneath your local monkey bars. But I don't know. Maybe it's all possible if we turn the prism and just look at things a little differently. Guaranteed is created by Respair Production and Media and me, your host, Eve Ewing, with the support of the Economic Security Project. And as always, thanks to our rock star friend, Jenna Severson, for her assistance. Our producers are Damon Williams, Daniel Kisslinger, and Jeanette Harris-Kortz. And our theme music is the song Woof by Sen Morimoto. Bye! This was fun. It was a bit of a... Good. It was like a... <laughs> since I'm not going to, you know, to a shrink... It's a, no. ah. it was a little catharsis? <laughs> a little bit of catharsis. I won't yeah, even right. bill you. I will say I'm a doctor. I'm not that kind of doctor, but you know what? This was on the house, so... <laughs>